program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Thank you very much uh, for that uh, introduction. Um, <clears throat> I'm just waiting for the alarm to go off. Uh, and, and it happened when I went from there to my next slide. Uh, and I thought I'd start this talk by giving uh, <clears throat> some numbers. We, we're so used to huge numbers these days. But this so-called epidemiological slide sets the scene for why people like myself and others are involved in cardiovascular research. If you look at this enormous figure here, that's six billion. That's the worldwide population, which I'm reliably told this morning by October this year will be just close to seven million. Of that, the total number of deaths per year are 54 million. So from six billion, you get 54 million deaths per year. And then more importantly, from a cardiovascular point of view, you can see that 31% of those deaths are some way related to the heart, be it coronary artery disease or cardiovascular, such as stroke. To put this in context, of course, it's important to appreciate that there are other very important diseases, such as AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. But you can clearly see that they are in a minority compared to cardiovascular disease. So there's something that we have to work on continuously to find ways to reduce this significant number of deaths. Well, what has led to the potential for man to suffer a heart attack? If you look through the last 200,000 years when man started to walk upright, you can see that probably he died of either saber-tooth, tiger bite, or some infection. But just in the last 100 years or so, that's the problem. And you can clearly see that that problem on the right is, leads to a potential to suffer heart attacks. One could also argue that if you look at this guy here, who's also obese uh, and pressing his finger on a telephone, uh, on a mobile phone, he's evolving uh, a large thumb because of all the texting he's doing. But the message here is quite simple. Exercise is very important, and obesity and overweight leads to heart attack and diabetes. So what is a heart attack and how is it caused? Very simply, a heart attack is caused if you've got, these are, this is the coronary arteries, supplying blood to the heart. If you have a blockage here, as you will see here, due to a plaque uh, and a blood clot, you will get distal to that muscle that dies. And a nice way to look at this is to look at a normal heart and to see that the heart is made up of trillions of cells that beat away very easily here. And what happens next, and this is showing you a dying cell. If I can get this little movie going. And so from a beating cell to a dying cell, you can see that cell shrinks and dies and folds up, and that's happening during the course of a heart attack. So we've got to keep these cells in this condition here for as long as possible. Let me show you another movie, because this uh, summarizes us quite well. This is a movie taken inside a coronary artery, an imaginary coronary artery. Now the blood is flowing towards you, and you can see the blood is made up of white blood cells, red blood cells, which carry oxygen, and these move things called platelets, which are involved in blood clotting. And as the blood's flowing towards you, underneath here, over many years, there's a buildup of plaque, 
and therefore these white blood cells will dive underneath to investigate what's going on. And you can see they'll move in there. And you'll get slowly this buildup of plaque and cholesterol, which will take a number of years. And you can see it building up here. And all of a sudden, it will uh, become like a volcano and suddenly erupt. And you can see here, this is what's happening now. It's erupting with the leaking of blood. Platelets in moves run like mad crazy to get sticking to this blood clot. And you'll see a mesh and a clot occurring, blocking off this whole artery in a few minutes. And that is what is causing a heart attack. To show you this in the real context, look at this horrible picture. This is a picture of a blood clot based on the same principle, burst through from underneath the plaque, eruptured, and that's going to block that coronary artery. So the, the consequences of blocking of a coronary artery by blood clot is what? Well, simply it's a heart attack or myocardial infarction. And you can see here, this is a myocardial infarction as a consequence of blocking by a blood clot, blocking the flow to the heart. Now, what can be done when someone is having a myocardial infarction? Well, there's a number of things you can do. These are the three practical things that occur on a daily basis uh, at all major hospitals. You can have the use of clot-busting drugs, the use of something called primary angioplasty, which I will discuss with you in a minute, as well as you can have or undertake coronary artery bypass surgery. And then I want to talk about some of the adaptive changes that occur in the myocardium or in the heart, and I'll come back to that shortly. Let's look at what are clot-busting drugs. These are drugs that dissolve that blood clot that I showed you earlier. So here's an example of an x-ray or an autoradiogram um, of a 49-year-old male who's had three hours after having a chest pain. And you can see quite clearly that that position there is where his blood clot is. This should be open. It should, blood should be flowing to the distal ends of the heart quite freely. They're not. If you give that patient a thrombolytic, in other words, a clot-busting drug, you can see quite clearly that you've opened up that artery and blood will flow. But that takes about 35 minutes. When you give a blood clotting, a clot-busting drug, it's like an ice cream that melts. It's not instantaneous. It takes a little time. In the meantime, some of the muscle is dying. But eventually, you will open up that artery and blood will flow freely. What about this primary angioplasty? Well, what is primary angioplasty? Well, here's a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Malcolm Walker, in the cath lab at the heart hospital. And he's putting a wire down the femoral artery of a patient. And he's going to here insert that over the blood clot. And he's going to blow up a balloon, remove the blood clot. It's like Dynarod. And he's going to remove the blood clot, and blood will flow freely. And then he's going to put something called a stent, which is basically a scaffold, which will keep that artery open. And this is the whole process of this is termed primary angioplasty. And this happens to a patient who's having a heart attack, gets rushed into hospital, and this occurs. Just to show you some more pretty pictures to make the point, you can see here quite clearly, I hope you can, that that is where the blood clot is. There's something obscuring the flow of blood down that coronary artery. So what he will do 
is you'll put a guide wire into that artery to know where he's sitting. He'll inflate a balloon. And hey presto, that'll be opened and blood will flow down. Um, to show you this in more graphic detail, that's where the blood clot is. I'll try and point this. You can see this area distal to the heart should be having blood flowing. It's not. It's starting to die because it's not getting any flow to that heart. The muscle needs that blood. What happens is in goes the balloon, inflates, and again, remarkably, you can see this lovely clear art, patent artery, and that's being uh, receiving blood, and hopefully that's done quickly, and I mean quickly, I mean within minutes, if not a very few hours, uh, you can save a lot of muscle, and muscle then is saving life. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just trying to get out of this. Right, now I want to get to the exciting part, as far as I'm concerned. This is what happens when you have a heart attack, this is what you have to do. But, we are amazingly fortunate that the heart looks after itself to a certain extent, and there are adaptive changes that occur to the benefit of the heart. You get what is called collateral flow developing, and you get something called preconditioning, which I'll come to in a minute. Let's start with collateral flow. What do I mean by collateral flow? Well, sorry. I, I forgot to mention coronary artery bypass surgery. I hope there's no surgeons in this room because they will kill me. Um, but this is another way of perfusing, uh, of, of returning blood flow to the heart. Quite simply, this is open heart surgery. And let's get in a little closer. And you can see a lot of pipes and tubes. And these tubes here basically are connecting to a, um, to a blood uh, uh, mach gas machine and they keep that oxygenated blood uh, free of the heart, but the brain gets pumped with that blood. So what's happening here is uh, this is so-called bypassing the heart. The heart is free, it's quiescent, it can then be worked on by the surgeon. And you can see this is really the principle of it all. If you've got a blood clot, say where these black marks are here, two blood clots in this particular heart, what the surgeon will do is you'll take an artery from, uh, from, the, from the leg or a vein from the leg or a mammary artery. He'll connect it to the aorta and he'll connect the distal part just past the blood clot and that's called bypassing that particular clot. And he'll do the same with a vein. He'll go from lower part of the aorta to the distal end, bypassing the clot, bringing blood in. So now... At last, I'm so excited I can get to the, to the collateral flow bit. Right, what is collateral flow? Well, this is the coronary vascular anatomy of a pig. And I'm sure you say, why is he showing you the coronary vascular anatomy of a pig? Well, other than it's a beautiful picture, if you had a blood clot here in that pig, just say that position there, everything distal to that would be would not be supplied by blood through that coronary artery and it would start to die. Notice that there's no real blood coming in from the other arteries to support it. This is called an end artery system so that if you have 
a blockage here, this will die. There's no feed coming in to prop up that tissue. Look at the difference between the pig and the dog. And it's quite clear to see that a dog heart has a mass of collaterals. So if you put a blockage blood clot in that particular branch of that artery, you can see this area where I'm trying to do a circle will become ischemic, it's called, will, will not receiving flow, will eventually die, but you can have blood flow coming in from surrounding areas to prop up that tissue. And you can keep that muscle viable and alive for much longer than you could keep the pig heart muscle alive. Well, what about the human? Because all we're really interested in is the human. Well, this is a, a human heart in the hands of a friend of mine uh, to, for a transplant. And you can see there's no much difference, except the human heart is always very, very fatty. And please don't ask me why the human heart is very fat at the end, because uh, other than the obvious things, nobody's fully sure. But let me go back to what a young adult, this is from a post-mortem of a young adult. And you can see here, does this remind you of any of the other pictures I showed you? Well, it should remind you of the pig. It's an end artery system, you have a blockage here, there's no feed coming in from collateral, so therefore, this muscle will die pretty quickly. On the other hand, this is an old adult with coronary artery disease, and reminds you of the dog, it's got a mass of developed collaterals. So these collaterals develop as you get older due to coronary artery disease. So it's an adaptation that occurs to the benefits of the older person with coronary artery disease. You say, well, having coronary artery disease is of no benefit at all. But you do get collaterals growing. And just for interest, if you look down all the animals, uh, you can see the pig, the rabbit, the baboon have surprisingly limited collateral flow, whereas the cat and the dog have a bit more. And for those of you who might have had guinea pigs over the course of your life, the guinea pig has just 100% collateral flow. In other words, that tells you you can never give the guinea pig a heart attack. It will always survive. I've tried, believe you me, many, many years ago. It will always survive because it has 100% collateral flow. It's remarkable why we're not learning from this. Why the guinea pig is that, we don't know. So the young adult, and I'm looking around this room, there are a few, um, are very much like the first two species, and the old adult with coronary artery disease is like the last two there. Which means that one of our defense mechanisms that we have is as a young adult, I hope I'm not insulting everybody, or anybody, but you're very pig-like, and take that in the appropriate way. But as an older adult, you develop coronary artery disease, and paradoxically, that is the stimulus for growth factors to be released, for the development of collateral uh, vessels to your advantage. So you become a bit like me here. Um, I've well, whether I've got coronary artery disease or not, I'm not sure yet. I'm sure all of us at a certain age will have a certain level of blockage. And there is, therefore, the room has to be divided into some pigs and some dogs. I'm sorry, I will fit into the right-hand side. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be like this guy. He's got it completely wrong. 
Okay? He should be on the treadmill, even though this chap will have the collaterals. He should be on the treadmill. He certainly got coronary artery disease. That's almost guaranteed. Right. I've mentioned collateral flow. I've mentioned the various ways to protect uh, the heart when you have a heart attack, how to return the blood flow as quickly as possible. I want to now come to something called preconditioning, which is very close to my heart because I've spent the number of years investigating and uh, this particular phenomenon and how we can best utilize that to the benefit of patients. Well, what is preconditioning? Well, this is going to be quite something to get your head around, but stopping and returning blood flow in the coronary arteries for a few minutes at a time paradoxically can protect the heart from a lethal heart attack. What it's really saying is that many heart attacks when I mean mini, mini heart attack, not that to kill you, but blocking flow, having hypoxia, reducing blood flow for a few minutes at a time before a lethal heart attack can significantly protect the heart. Let me try and convince you with the following slide. This is muscle taken from a heart which has been sliced from apex through to base. It's been subjected to 30 minutes of lethal blood flow, uh, stoppage of blood flow, lethal uh, ischemia it's called. And you can see when we stain it, everything in white here is infarcted muscle, is dead tissue, which will never survive. Okay, so you've got, you've really damaged this heart. Now, if you give this heart, before you give it the 30 minutes of lethal insult, if you give it a treatment, and that treatment just consists of stopping blood flow for five minutes, returning blood flow for five minutes before the lethal attack. Look at the difference that you get. Isn't that absolutely remarkable? The amount of infarction, the amount of dead tissue is significantly smaller. And we got into this a number of years ago, uh, basically because it's so exciting to find the mechanism of what is happening in the five minutes of ischemia, five minutes stopping flow, uh, to give you this most profound protection, um, really uh, set a number of us uh, to investigate the mechanisms associated with this. Because if we can find the mechanism, then you can develop the right drugs or the right procedures to institute this in patients. Well, why does this happen? And can we exploit it to our advantage? Those are the big questions. Well, why does it happen? We think, well, we're almost 100% certain that that phenomenon of preconditioning activates survival proteins in the heart, which when you then have your lethal insult, they're sitting there and they're ready to protect and prevent the muscle from dying. Can we exploit that? That was the other question. Can we exploit this to our advantage? Well, we need a model, and what I mean by that is not that model. We need an actual biological laboratory model. We need something that we can work on in the lab to prove the hypothesis. This is one of the models we use. This is called an isolated perfused heart preparation. In this case, this is a rat's heart. The rat's been anesthetized, the chest has been opened, the heart's been removed, and it's retrogradely perfused down the coronary arteries here with 
a liquid that simulates blood. Okay, it's called a buffer, it's a Krebs buffer which simulates blood and that goes on beating for hours. So what we can do is we can put a suture around one of the arteries, we can ligate it and give it a heart attack and here you can see when we put a blue dye in that heart because we've cut off flow here, everything distal to that does not have flow and that will have be your area where your heart attack occurs and your muscle starts to die. And what we can do is very simply look at the white tissue, which is the dead tissue, look at the area here that's the light red, which is the area that we're trying to salvage. You can't cure dead tissue. Once it's dead, it's dead. But there's a lot of muscle you can save because all will happen here is if you don't do something, this white area will extend through to that light red area. This is just a graph to show you how protective this phenomenon is. If we don't do anything, we'll get about close to 70% infarction. If we precondition, we can reduce it significantly. It's an extremely powerful tool. Okay, does it occur in man? Because no matter what I show you in terms of dogs, pigs, and rabbits, in any species, the most important species is us. Okay, we have to show whether we can protect in man. Well, the way we do this is before we get directly into man, we use human muscle to, <coughs> excuse me, to investigate this phenomenon. This is what's happening during bypass surgery, as I showed you earlier. You can't see this very well, but what happens, these pipes and tubes have to be connected this area here in the right atrium. So the surgeon has to cut off that right atrium. It's part of the operation. He throws it away. One of my clinical research fellows stands there with a pot and catches it, rushes it back to the laboratory, and there it is. And I hope you can see this. These are strips of right atrial muscle. So we can remove that muscle, put it in this complicated looking system and I only show you this to try and pretend that we're all that clever it's not that it's quite straightforward it's just putting I'll show you this picture here looking closer you can see that's a piece of human muscle 30 minutes after the patient is having the operation or while the patient is still having the operation we've taken that piece of muscle back to the laboratory and uh, we've put it in a, a, a an organ bath and we can stimulate it and it can carry on contracting. Now the wonderful thing about this is it's not animal, it's human. So therefore we can do everything that we've done in the animal setting through to the human to see whether the same principles apply. So here's our piece of human muscle. We subject it to a mini heart attack by blocking flow and if we don't do anything you can see we get a, we're looking at the amount of muscle that recovers function. And you can see that if we don't do anything, we get about 20% recovery of function of that muscle. If we precondition it with a small burst of ischemia or burst of hypoxia before the lethal insult, we get significant protection. So again, this is proof of concept that we've gone from the animal setting to man 
and into human muscle and we can see protection. I put up that picture to have a drink of water and also to say why am I showing you a Japanese garden? Well, everything's got a reason and I happened to be in Japan at a meeting a number of years ago and we walked around this particular garden, beautiful, beautiful garden, uh, with a colleague of mine, Mr. Wilf Pugsley, and he's the cardiothoracic, so it was the cardiothoracic surgeon at our hospital here. And I remember walking around and said, Wilf, time has come to go from animal to man. We've got to see if we can do this in patience, not in human muscle even, but in patience, because it's of no use to anybody unless we can exploit this to the benefit of a patient. So we went to our ethics committee, and that's Wilf there. And just to show you a picture of what, is, what happens in surgery, there's lots of people, there's perfusionists, there's hangers-on all over the place. Um, we went to our ethics committee, and they gave us approval to do the following study. The study comprised of, that's a, I'll show you this picture of the heart, and I'll show you this picture of a clock for a reason. That's the heart, that's the aorta, this big massive artery coming off. We had permission to clamp that aorta. Okay, I can see some people going like that. I was going like that as well. Let me, let me show you, in the control hearts, where, we had, we, where the surgeon sewed on three graphs, a total of 30 minutes of injury while he's doing all that work. In the, that was the control. We, in the test group or the precondition group, we blocked the aorta for three minutes. We let blood flow back for two minutes. We did it again for three minutes, and we let blood flow back for two minutes. Now, I promise you, I was in the I was at. The, I went to see the first operation done because it was my idea, and. Um, I sat in the corner in an operating theater. There's lots of people. There's God, which is the surgeon, and there's all the lesser. And I was the least of the lot in the corner by the door, ready to escape. Because when you cross-clamp that aorta for three minutes, and you look at the clock, and this was the clock in the operating theater, it's a long time for those three minutes to go. And everybody's standing like this doing nothing. Now, I was very confident based on all the previous work that we'd done in animals and human muscle, that we would see something beneficial to that, for that patient. But having said that, it's a long time to wait, especially when you do it twice. These are the results that we got. I'm trying to get this to move on. Okay. We measured an enzyme called troponin T which is an enzyme which tells you if you're injuring your heart, if your heart is damaged. Before the bypass, the enzyme is not exist, non-existent because the heart's not damaged. During the surgery itself, you get a significant increase in this enzyme, implying that there's some periprocedural injury occurring during the bypass surgery. When we precondition those patients with those two, three-minute bursts of ischemia and reperfusion, you can see there was a significantly lower level of that enzyme, implying as a proof of concept that preconditioning was highly protective to that patient. It was a tremendously exciting when we did this, and although this was done in 1997, you can say, well, why isn't this routine? 
Why is it used routinely? Well, simply because it's in an invasive technique. Nobody or no surgeon wants to clamp off their aorta. This was a proof of concept to show that this phenomenon worked. We had to wait another few years to get an idea of how to take this further. And that was done following. So the question was, is there a non-invasive way? Can we do this without actually opening the chest, clamping the aorta? So let me just go back. Preconditioning, as I've tried to explain to you, is stopping and returning blood flow in the coronary artery themselves. Okay? But if you stop and return blood flow in another part of the body, okay, distal or from the heart itself, you can also protect. Let me show you what I mean by that. We called it remote preconditioning. So in other words, if you precondition the kidney, the gut, or the liver, you can protect the heart. So you can, but these are still invasive techniques. You have to open up, find the kidney, find the gut, find the liver. What about the arm? What about if you put a blood pressure cuff on the arm and you squeeze it to make it stop flow for a little bit? Would that not act the same way as preconditioning? So again, we went to our ethics committee to do the following proof of concept study. We took patients, we called it a proof of concept. We took patients who were having what is called elective coronary artery bypass surgery, routine. We put a blood pressure cuff on those patients' arm while they were asleep. So they were anesthetized, they didn't feel anything. You put a blood pressure cuff on the arm, you inflate it for five minutes, and you did that, we did that three times. Then they were wheeled into the surgery for the surgeon to get on with his job. Okay, just by the by, putting a blood pressure cuff on the arm is uncomfortable. I've done it myself, but it's bearable, but these patients were asleep. So if we did that, and we repeated that three times, compared to a control group which didn't have a blood pressure cuff put on the arm, and we measured this enzyme troponin again, what would we see? Well, this is the profile of the patient's troponin release over the course of 72 hours. You can see it's up and it stays up, implying that there's some injury. And when we preconditioned by putting a blood pressure cuff on the arm for three minutes, uh, for twice, a significantly reduced. So just that non-invasive procedure showed that we could protect. And we published this in The Lancet a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Now, I'm fortunate, that's why I've brought this whole thing around to something called would you give your right arm to protect your heart? Because that's exactly what we're doing. Based on those very first studies that I showed you, we've built up a story uh, that shows that we could potentially put a blood pressure cuff on the arm and protect our heart. Everybody's asking why, how is this working? We ask this question on a daily basis. We don't have the answer, but we think the answer is as follows. And we, we, and believe you me, the rest of the world is trying to hunt this mechanism as we speak because it's so um, potentially important. When we put a blood pressure cuff on the arm, we believe that there's a humoral factor. That means a, a, a small peptide, a small protein, um, 
uh, that's being released during the period that you're stopping flow. So when you return flow, it races to the heart and protects the heart uh, from injury. And we're all looking for that at the moment. But even equally as exciting is that we are undertaking a large study. What I showed you was before was a small proof of proof of uh, uh, a small study showing that we could protect the heart. Proof of concept. We've been very fortunate to get some funding over 1.7 million pounds from the government, uh, as uh, well as the MR, the MRC, the NIHR, and the BH British Heart Foundation, to do the first randomized control study of this um, in the world. And we started last week. We've got two patients on board. We need to get many, many more. Uh, but there are 12 centers all around the UK that are working with us. So it's potentially very exciting to show whether this non-invasive technique can protect. So I think my time is up, yeah. Um, what I want to conclude is the following. I've tried to show you that various ways to protect your heart when you have a heart attack, be it thrombolysis, be it coronary artery bypass surgery, be it <clears throat> using angioplasty, all ways to return blood flow to the damaged muscle as quickly as possible. I've also mentioned the importance of your own defense mechanism that you have in terms of developing these important vessels when you have coronary artery disease. And then I'll try to show you what happens in cells, in animals, and in human muscle, and take that rightly through to man, uh, to protect man. And this is what we're trying to do uh, as we speak. So let me finally add, this is a, everything I've discussed with you is done in conjunction with colleagues, both here, us in the Hatter Institute, at University College Hospital, at University College London itself, and I'm indebted also to our grant awarding bodies such as the British Heart Foundation, the MRC, the Wellcome Trust, and the NIHR. In addition to uh, Sir Maurice Hatter and the Hatter Foundation, Sir Maurice is in the audience, we're indebted to him for his long-term support. To Mr. and Mrs. Mark Donald, who are new supporters of ours, we're also indebted to them, as well as the Rose Tree Trust, who are helping us with some of our clinical studies. On that note, I'm prepared, if I've got time, to, to take some questions. Thank you very much. This is the worst part when you see hands just go up like this. Well, re referring to uh, those of us of a certain age, uh, should we try this at home? Say try what? Um, no, you don't. No, you don't. You only. It's. It's of only. It's of only you. It's useful to you if you know you're going to have a heart attack in the next few minutes or. So, you know, leave it to. What we what we try to do in all seriousness is if someone is having a heart attack and gets into an ambulance. We 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 are. In, we are in talks with London Ambulance at the moment to see if we can use the London Ambulance individuals uh, to inflate a balloon while the patient's being taken to hospital to set up a protective pathway.
Would you, would you say more about the tendency of heart muscle not to uh, regenerate, whereas many other organs and parts of the body do, I think, don't they? Uh, yes, you're right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, unfortunately, the heart doesn't regenerate. According to some, <laughs> there's some people that say that it might. But as far as we know, it doesn't regenerate. I can't give you an intelligent answer as to why, why the heart it was left to other organs to, you know, and other animal species can regenerate anything, but we can't. We don't know why that is. There's a huge amount of funding being put into that at the moment in terms of stem cell research to see uh, if uh, individuals can, can look at that. Um, I'm often asked um, why I don't go into stem cell research because it's exceptionally exciting. And my answer is quite simple. <clears throat> um, stick to what you know. Number one, um, if I went into stem cell research, we'd probably muddy the waters. There's very good people out there doing very good work, and we should get answers uh, um, in the not-too-distant future. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. So I'm sorry I can't answer your question as you might have liked. We all want to know why the heart won't regenerate. Do you know, please, how, how long the survival proteins last? Would you have to... Yeah, very good question. We think they last between two and three hours. I see. Thank you. Yeah. But you'll be pleased to hear that we were the first to describe what is called a second window of protection. And the same proteins come back after 24 to 48 hours. We're not sure why. But there is like the first three or four hours and then disappears and then there's a second window and we try to say so from a clinical point of view that's very important um, you've Thank stated you the right arm sorry is, is this the right arm is literally the right arm not the left arm no no no, okay, no I just it sounded nicer to say would you give your right arm than to say, would you give your left arm? So, no, it could be any arm. And in fact, it's a very important point you make. We are now looking at the legs as well, because uh, if you think about it, excuse me, I'll walk across here, but the leg is much greater muscle mass. So you could argue that you get a better ischemic burden. In other words, you get more, more for your buck, so to speak, by squeezing your leg. And we try to investigate now whether uh, uh, you know, one arm and two legs is better than, but any organ is making it, making stopping blood flow is of benefit, we think. Okay. Thank you very much for your lecture. I was just wondering, you mentioned this humoral factor. Where would it come from in your experiments on just muscle? That's the very, we think it happens when you have hypoxia, when you stop blood flow. Uh, we think either uh, from the mitochondria or various parts of the cell release a peptide. And um, I've just come back from America. Uh, I was on a, a special group of individuals from the National Institute of Health uh, looking and asking these very questions that you've just asked. And, um, and the National Institute of Health in America are putting millions of pounds into just trying to find out what this factor is. And, and we in Europe uh, are also um, developing experiments to try and find out what this factor is. Because, of course, if it's real and if it's what causes protection, 
then we can target that perfectly. But we think it's just, we're not sure what it is, where it's coming from. But you can take a heart, you can, make, you can take a bit of muscle, you can take some of the blood, you can put it into another species, and you can get protection. So it's transferring some factor in the blood, some small peptide in the blood that can be protected. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Um, sorry about that, and thank you very much for coming. And I'd like you to join me in thanking Professor Yellen for a very stimulating talk. Thank you. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Thank you.